We're going to read some more in John chapter 12. It's the last week in the Lord's life. It's quite amazing because several of these chapters in John really have to do just with a few days. He's in the upper room. He's had uh, a meeting with his inner circle of followers. And in the upper room, uh, most of what we're going to be reading until the Lord is crucified is taking place. This is his last week. It's his passion week. It's the week of his, of his suffering. And so the text picks up where we left off last week. It's John chapter 12, verse 37. Look what it says. But though he, the Lord Jesus, though he had performed so many signs, miracles and signs and Wonders, and the text says there were many of these, not a singular supernatural uh, activity or sign, many signs. And the word means not only many in terms of quantity, but in terms of variety. The Lord performed uh, manifold numbers of miracles. In fact, I did a little brief study on the chronological order in which the Lord performed his miracles as recorded in the Gospels. I left out some, but let me just quickly remind you of these. He turned water into wine. That was at a wedding, wasn't it, in Cana? He healed a royal official's son. He freed a man of demons. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He arranged for a miraculous catch of fish. He healed a leper. He healed a centurion's servant. He healed a paralyzed man. He healed a man with a withered hand. He raised a widow's son. He calmed a storm. He healed a woman with internal bleeding. He raised Jairus' daughter. He healed two blind men. He healed a man who had been sick for 38 years. He miraculously fed 5,000 men and their families. He walked on water. He healed a deaf man. He healed a demon-possessed boy. He brought up a fish with a gold coin in its mouth. He healed a woman who had been sick for 18 years. He healed 10 lepers. He healed Bartimaeus of blindness. And most recently, we read of this one, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Manifold signs and wonders attesting to the fact that he was who he said he was. He was the Messiah indeed. And these signs of Messiahship, John is telling us, were done before eyewitnesses. There need not be secondhand accounts of this. Many there in Jerusalem on this occasion of the Passover were privy, firsthand eyewitnesses to all of these miracles that the Lord had performed. But the text goes on rather mysteriously to say, but though he had performed so many signs, look, before them, they were eyewitnesses, they were in full view. Nothing was done in secret. Though all this happened, now here's the very perplexing statement, yet they were not believing in him. Now that has got to get your attention. I mean, I read a list of 30 miracles, left out many others. How could you be privy to those things, see it, and walk away in unbelief. Yet that's what the text says. They and the they, I have to be honest and sadly tell you that they are Jews. They were Jews there in Jerusalem 
during this Passover gathering, they, the Jews, in spite of the fact that they were eyewitnesses of all of these supernatural attesting signs of the Lord, nonetheless, they, these Jews, most of them, were not believing in him. And so that leads to this question, why? Why not? How could it be that they would need more evidence that he's Lord and Savior? And then I wonder, did all this Jewish unbelief take him by surprise? Was he disappointed? Did he fail? Did the Messiah, the did, did God in flesh have a different expectation? And was he caught unawares? Was he taken by surprise at Jewish unbelief? Well, uh, here's the answer in the next verse, verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke. So uh, Isaiah, a prophet, wrote 700 years before the time of the Lord Jesus. And John is telling us, no, the Lord didn't fail. He was not surprised by all this Jewish unbelief. In fact, Isaiah spoke about it 700 years prior, and what was happening now in the Lord's day was to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. And John now refers to something Isaiah said in chapter 53 of Isaiah, verse 1. It says, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Questions are being asked in Isaiah's day. By whom? Well, they were being asked, frankly, by people like me, Jews, who came to believe their own scriptures about the Messiah. These are Jews who read in their own scriptures about a coming one who would one day offer his life as atonement for their sin, and they believed in him, looking forward to his coming. It's these Jewish believers, 700 years before the time of Jesus, who are asking these questions. They too are perplexed. Who has believed our report? They were doing just what the hellfighters were doing. They were sharing good news in Isaiah's day and asking the question, who's believing? Most are not believing. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's a sign of his deliverance. It's like the Lord pulls back his sleeves and, 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 and bears his mighty arms in order to provide salvation. And yet these Jewish believers in Isaiah's day are perplexed. God is doing all this, but who's receiving it? Who's believing? And so they're struck by the fact that in Isaiah's day, many did not believe. Now, 700 years after that, John himself, a Jew, is saying that Jewish people who did not believe in Isaiah's day are only a foreshadowing, a tragic foreshadowing, of the Jews who also didn't believe in Jesus' day. And that's why John says this was to fulfill what Isaiah the prophet said. No, this didn't take the Lord by surprise. He knew he would not get a good response from his own, and yet he offered himself on their behalf anyway. But why is it that most Jewish people in Isaiah's day and in 
John's day and sadly in our day, why is it that most Jewish people reject Jesus as their Messiah? David, I find it absolutely hilariously um, wonderful that you guys <laughs> ran into four New York Jews, the worst kind, and uh, they were wearing, David was asking me about this, they were wearing fringes. Did you see that in the photo? On the corners of their garments, the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures say you should tie these fringes on the corners of your garments. So they were the real deal. They were Orthodox Jews for sure. And uh, there you are, Gentile people who know their Messiah and they don't know him. They think wearing these fringes are going to get them some points with Almighty God. And you know the only way to be right with him is by accepting Jesus, his, his son. It's just an ironic thing. And so in Isaiah's day, in John's day, in this day, why is it that most Jews do not believe in Jesus? I am an aberration. I'm an exception to the rule. I'm blessed and pleased, but saddened. Where are the rest of my people? Why am I in the minority in this particular a place. Well, here is the answer in verse 40. He has blinded their eyes. And so what John is doing is quoting again from Isaiah, this time Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. He has blinded their eyes that he is God. Uh, John is explaining Jewish unbelief on this basis. God did it. Why don't Jews believe? Now, hang in. Don't throw anything at me yet. Why don't Jews believe? It's because God has blinded their eyes. He hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. So, in answer to the question which I posed, why is it that most Jewish people don't believe in Jesus, uh, though even in his day they were eyewitnesses to his marvelous works, why did so many reject him? Here's the answer. It's because God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. But wait a minute. If God has blinded Jewish eyes, how could God hold Jewish people responsible for rejecting Jesus as their Jewish Messiah? Do you see what I'm getting at? If God hardened their hearts and blinded their eyes, how could he hold them responsible for not seeing? He's the one who blinded them. Doesn't it seem to say that? Look, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes, perceive with their heart, be converted, and I healed them. So I ask you, how could God hold them responsible for their unbelief if he's the one who's keeping them from believing? Do you see where I'm getting at at this point? Now, we're not going to end here, so, so hang on. We have to explain this. And here's the explanation. God did not, out of the blue, harden their hearts. They did. They hardened their own hearts. And as a result, God gave them over to their hardened hearts. We can call it a judicial hardening. As a consequence of their rejection of their own Messiah, God let them have what their hearts demanded. He did not arbitrarily elect them to be damned, to be unsaved, to be hardened. He saw it coming 
Because God sees the end from the beginning. He's not bound by time like you and I are. And so from before time, he knows how everyone here would one day respond to his son Jesus, some in faith and some in hardness of heart. And God in his foreknowledge, because he could see in advance how we, we Jews and Gentiles would respond to his son, God simply gave way to our choice. Because though he's powerful, he will not impose his will upon us. No, he's given us free will. In other words, God knowing they would not believe my people, God knowing that most of my people would not believe, imposed blindness on them so that they could not believe. Can you see it? But what came first? It was their own rejection of Jesus that begat a judicial hardening. Their blindness and their hardening, however, did not take place against their will. It is very much in keeping with their will. Now, we're going to get a little uh, dicey here. Some would explain what I just explained in an entirely different way. And uh, to be fair, I, I should let you know of the alternative explanation. Some would say God, being sovereign, which everyone here I know agrees with. God being sovereign has simply from before time chosen or elected some to be saved and others to remain in blindness and thus eternally unsaved. That's what some would in fact say. They would say God has predetermined or, have you heard this word? Predestined those who will be elected to salvation, and he has also predestined some to be elected to damnation. Now, this is the thinking of those who hold to a... Th Listen, I apologize. We're getting a little deep and a little theological tonight, but the text gives rise to it. This is the thinking of those who hold to a theological system known as Calvinism. Calvinism. Why is it called that? Well, it's named after a great, don't put him down, folks. It's named after a brilliant French theologian named John Calvin, who was very, very instrumental in the Protestant Reformation, the roots of which we all, whether you know it or not, are connected to. He was born in 1509, and he, he died in 1564. Good Christians align themselves with this theological system known as Calvinism. I am not one of them, but I know of a number of very godly, scholarly, committed believers who do affiliate with this school of theology known as Calvinism. Now, though I am not a Calvinist, I think it's very wrong to bash those who are. In fact, the bashing usually takes place by non-Calvinists who don't know a thing about Calvinism. They're setting up a strong man, a straw man, and they're demonizing some of the finest ex ex expositors of Scripture in our day to day. In fact, if I ever was going to write a book on this subject, and I'm not, but if I ever was, I decided I would entitle it Rejecting Calvinism but Accepting Calvinists. In our denomination today, um, we're doing both. We're taking sides. We're not only 
some of us rejecting Calvinism. We are also rejecting Calvinists, some of our finest brothers and sisters. To our shame, it seems to me, the only one who's pleased is the evil one who wants to divide us. So though I do not think this man-made overlay on scripture, by the way, do you know that's what Calvinism is? Or dispensationalism or covenant theology. These are brilliant, wonderful attempts to harmonize scripture. That's what they are. They're not from the pits of hell. They're from the heart and mind of godly Christians like John Calvin. And he looks at all 66 books of the Bible and tries to uh, find threads in them, pull it together so that we could understand the totality of Scripture. But you have to know all of these systems, Calvinism, Arminianism, dispensationalism, these are all man-made overlays on Scripture. So th though they should be respectfully uh, considered, to attach oneself to any one of these and go to war over it misses the point. I'll tell you, the war, it's what those people did when they traveled to Sturgis. It's the war of sharing the gospel, piercing the darkness with the light of Jesus Christ, not dividing over Calvinism, dispensationalism, and all of these things which really do not emanate from Scripture. They're imposed on Scripture, and they have various degrees of validity to them. No problem, but they're man-made overlays. Anyway, I do not think that Calvinism as a man-made theological overlay on Scripture to me is the best approach. I don't think it uh, accommodates the totality of the testimony of Scripture. That's all. So I find it to be a weak theory, and therefore I don't, I don't embrace it. But I do not demonize those who do because, as I say, they're brothers and sisters. They've been saved the same way I have, and they're just as intent on Great Commission efforts as I, a non-Calvinist, like to think I am. Now, those who hold to Calvinism uh, very respectably and admirably do so because they want to uphold the sovereignty of God. This is one of the hallmarks of Calvinism. God is sovereign. Now, who would argue with this? However, uh, they take it, in my opinion, in the wrong direction. In a quest to rightly defend the sovereignty of God, they're saying free will, therefore, is contrary to the sovereignty of God. Therefore, if you or I can decide when we hear the gospel on accepting or rejecting it, that means that gives us more power than a sovereign God has. So human free will uh, contravenes, they would say, human sovereignty. That's why they embrace the doctrine of election and irresistible grace, which says, no way. When God wants you saved, you will be saved. You have no say in the matter. Now, I think they're, uh, uh, they're right about upholding the sovereignty of God, but I think there's a better way to do it, my way. So, so, so here's the deal. I ask you a question. Who else but an infinitely uh, sovereign God would dare, could feel safe and secure enough to extend free will to his sinful, creaturely beings like you and I? 
Only a sovereign God could do that. It's an insecure authority figure who controls the decisions of all of his underlings. There are pastors like this. They look like they're strong and authoritative, but they're really scared little children. And that's why you need their signature anytime you order a piece of chalk in a church. They have to control everything. They're, we don't have one like that. If you think I'm referring to Brother John, I'm not. He lets us get chalk without his signature. <laughs> folks, 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 folks. Or a dad. Usually an insecure dad is one who's over-controlling in his parenting technique. An insecure God would not extend to you and I free will and choice. He would impose his will upon us. But because he's so sovereign, he can entrust free will even to sinful creaturely beings like you and I, knowing in spite of our choices, his redemptive plan will work its way out in exactly according to his will. That's why he's worthy to be worshipped. So I don't buy into the Calvinistic approach to the sovereignty of God. So I believe God gives us what our heart demands. So if one has a heart that will be open to Jesus, they will have Jesus. And if we have a heart hardened to Jesus, God will allow the hardening so that we cannot find Jesus. He will not impose his will upon us. He can read our wills in advance, and he will simply give us what our heart is demanding. So with regard to the Jewish people in our text, since God in his foreknowledge knew they would not believe, he arranged for things so that they could not believe. You see what I'm getting at? Since he knew they would not, he arranged for things so that they could not. But this is not due to God removing their freedom of choice. This is not due to God uh, uh, limiting their free will. This is due to God turning them over to their will. So with respect to accepting or rejecting Jesus as Savior, you decide. God does not impose salvation on you, and he surely does not harden some against their wills so that they can never see Jesus Christ. That, to me, is contrary to the testimony of Scripture. Now, I want to tell you this. Though God, seeing that the Jewish people would harden their hearts towards Jesus, though he gave them over to their hardened hearts, you should not think that this hardening of Jewish people is forever. You must not do that. There's a lot of that going on today, and it's called replacement theology. Those stiff-necked, hard-hearted Jews have rejected Jesus. Therefore, God has forever rejected them. See, that too seems to me to fly in the face of Scripture. Paul, for instance, a Jew, the last time I checked, clearly taught that Israel, Jewish people, would be hardened, but he said temporarily. He saw that Israel would be hardened, but he mentioned that it would be partial. The hardening of Israel would be temporary and partial. I will read to you this passage of Scripture. It's in Romans 11, verses 25 to 27. You'll forgive me if I'm uh, 
getting too Jewish here, but uh, I'm only making comments that flow from the text. It's a Jewish Messiah in the Jewish capital city of Jerusalem during the Jewish time of the Feast of Passover, and we're reading quotations from the Jewish prophet Isaiah. So if you think this is too Jewish, argue with God. Oh, by the way, he's Jewish too. <laughs> Just want to warn you beforehand. So here's what Paul, the Jew, uh, he was Rabbi Shaul, also known as Paul of Tarsus, said in Romans 11, verses 25 to 27. He says, for I do not want you brethren. So he's speaking to Christians fellow believers. I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Another way of putting it is, I want you to be informed and not arrogant so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Here's what he wants them to know, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles. Do you know why most of my people don't believe today? It's to give you guys a chance to respond. That's why. It's called the fullness of the Gentiles. And so Jewish rejection of the gospel, Romans says, is a grand opportunity for the gospel to be propagated and proclaimed, heard and accepted by Gentiles. And when the household of the faith is fully populated with Gentiles, God returns to put a focus of attention on Jews again. So I read to you. Until, that's a time indicator, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then all Israel will be saved. That's what it says, Romans 11. I didn't write it, I'm just reading it. So for those who think God is through with Israel, uh, how do you explain what I just read? And then, not now, then, future, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, meaning God ordained this, prophesied it well in advance, just as it is written, the deliverer, that's Jesus, this is another quotation from Isaiah, the deliverer will come from Zion, that's Jerusalem. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, that's a name representing Jews. This is my covenant with them, when, not if, when I take away their sins. The church has turned their backs on my people. I have to tell you, our missions efforts are very limited. Uh, our support of Jewish evangelism is very, very, I don't mean this church, I'm talking about in general. And we have so Gentilized our faith, my people can't recognize it anymore. It is just, and yet when you see the roots of the faith, my goodness, they're pretty Jewish. So God's judicial hardening of the Jewish people is temporary and is partial. Even in John's own day, which we are reading about, it wasn't that all Jewish people were hardened. In fact, most of the early believers were Jewish. In that day, you would have been a novelty. Wow, a Gentile who is embracing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And just a few months after what we're reading about here in John 12, just a few months after this, on a day we, we call um, Pentecost or... Um, in Hebrew, it's Shavuot. On that particular day, 3,000 in Jerusalem came to know the Lord. Folks, they were all Jews. 
So it is not that God has forsaken all the Jews at all. And after that, many of the Jews came to Jesus, not the least of which is Rabbi Shaul or Paul, who I just quoted from in Romans. And so, folks, the judicial hardening of Jewish people is temporary. It is partial. God is not finished with the Jewish people, and therefore neither should we be. Folks, I, I don't want to you know, unduly surprise you, but the Lord's earthly reign is not going to be set up in Austin, Texas. It's in Jerusalem. The temple is going to be rebuilt, not in Rome, in Jerusalem. Jesus is going to reign there. And then on one of the holidays, Sukkot or Tabernacles, it says the people of the world will go up to Jerusalem to celebrate it. So I know you're very familiar with Eastern Christmas and all that other kind of stuff, but you better get your head on straight about tabernacles, because according to the scriptures, you're going to be observing it. Hey, I'm here to help you. Don't worry. So, 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 so the judicial hardening of the Jews in Isaiah's day and John's day and our day is partial. God has had a remnant of Jewish believers in every generation. I'm one. There are many others. Always a remnant, but there will be a day when the national character of my people, now it is rejection of Jesus, then it will be acceptance of Jesus. That's what it means. And then all Israel will be, will be saved. I'm tempted to share something with you because I'm angry about it. And that's not a good way to be. Um, <clears throat> I'm a Southern Baptist and glad of it because of what our denomination represents. We have challenges like everybody does, but man, we represent outreach, gospel sharing, the inerrancy of scripture. We're a great denomination. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. <clears throat> 60 plus of our finest professors got together and prepared a curriculum for students that they're offering our churches at no charge. I was asked to review it, so I did. It's magnificent. There are lessons in it designed for teens to go a little deeper, not just come to church, but be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. And so there are lessons in it on practical matters and also on theological matters. It's a beautiful mix. It lasts over a period of years, and you go through these lessons each year. And then there are wonderful lessons on outreach to different people groups in it, like how to share the gospel with your Buddhist friend or how to share the gospel with your Muslim friend. They even had lessons on how to share the gospel with your a friend who was a Jehovah's Witness or your friend who was a Mormon and so on. Really, really good. I read the whole thing. And much to my surprise, something was missing. How about how to share the gospel with your Jewish friend? Wasn't there. I looked through again. I looked through again. I couldn't find it. I'm pretty upset because this is developed by our key missiologists from our seminaries. How do you leave the Jews out when Jesus says, all day long I stretch out my hand? Admittedly, to a disobedient and obstinate people, but that didn't keep Jesus from keeping to stretch out his hand. Did our entire denomination, our brain trust of 60 plus 
seminary professors, including our key missiologists, identify every people group, including certain cult groups, and you leave out the Jews? So I went to visit um, one of our seminary professors uh, to speak. Uh, not angrily, nothing like that. Uh, just I was perplexed. Um, in fact, it hurt me quite a bit. And uh, he told me he was going up to our seminary at Southwest, and he was going to visit with the editor of the lessons. He had no explanation for me about why this happened. I said, uh, if I wrote a letter, could you carry it for me? Not an indictment, just a, a plea. I just want to know, as a fellow Southern Baptist, why did we leave out the Jews? He said, I'm glad to hand carry it. So he did. And a week later, I got a response from the, the wonderful godly man who was in charge of this program. And he said, uh, uh, to be honest with you, I, we don't really know how this happened. And... Uh, we would like you to write that lesson. Would you write that lesson so we could include it in the curriculum? To which I responded, thank you so much, and thank you for responding. I know you're busy, and yes, I'd be privileged to write the lesson. I'll send it to you for your approval, and I did. And so they included it in this curriculum. Yeah, but before you clap, before you clap, you know where they put it? In the end, as an addendum. I'm sick to my stomach. And could I tell you something? You turn your back on Jews and watch God turn your back on you. If that's happening in our, on, our, on the level of our seminary professors, doggone it, folks, I'm just reading scripture here. I just read to you Romans. If our brain trust thinks God is through with the Jews so that you don't even include outreach to them in the curriculum which you're using to disciple our future leaders. And when a crank guy like me, a cranky guy like me, writes you a letter, you throw the dog a bone and put it at the end in the addendum, shame on you. Shame. I'm disgusted, folks, and, and I'm angry. And uh, we're not doing so well as a convention, and I wonder if this is one of the reasons we're drifting from the biblical mooring points of our faith. You extract Jews from the mix. You spit in the face of the Jewish Messiah. Well, I have a good note on which we can end. Thank you for doing this. If you didn't let me get this out, I would go home, may, I don't know, maybe beat my wife. <laughs> I tried that once, and man, she came back at me with a, Uppercut. I'll never do that again. Well, I'm disgusted. I'm upset by this. Uh, why does it take a Jewish believer to have to point this out? It ought to be Gentile believers who study the Bible who represent the totality of the cause of Christ. Folks, the 144,000 in the book of Revelation are not Jehovah's Witnesses. They're not Buddhists. They're not Muslims. They're 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. God is not finished with the Jews for crying out loud. For our convention to be finished with them, at least on paper, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Okay, we're going to end on a positive note. Look, verse 41. These things Isaiah said, John is writing, and he's quoting again. Look, I, listen, a very well-known preacher, 
very well-known, big mega church. You would know his name. I recently made the statement that we have to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. If we're going to be relevant today and reach people, we've got to, un, his words, not mine, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament because the Old Testament, you know, represents a God. Modern-day people, they don't relate to that God. You know what I mean? Let's just unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Well, that guy ought to speak to John about that because in just a few verses, God, uh, John has quoted from Isaiah about four times. Apparently, John didn't hear that sermon on unhitching yourself from the Old Testament. So here, once again, John, New Testament writer, is quoting from Isaiah. I'm not making this up, am I? Verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. And John here is quoting specifically from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Listen to these great verses. In the year of King Uzziah's death... I saw the Lord, Isaiah saying this, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and two he, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, here's the cool thing. Isaiah saw God's glory. But John, in our text here, is saying the glory Isaiah saw was of Jesus. Look, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory. He's referring to Jesus. And he spoke of him. He's referring to Jesus. What's the point? It's this. Jesus is God. And it was his glory. It was the glory of Jesus whom Isaiah beforehand saw. Isaiah saw Christ's glory. Isaiah saw the glory of the exalted Son of God centuries before he came here on earth in the form of man. John, on the other hand, saw the glory of the exalted Son of God after he came here in the form of man. And I close with this. Do you see the glory of the exalted Jesus, the Son of God, right now? Here's the danger. If you turn away from the evidence, from what you have been exposed to, from what you have seen and heard, you run the risk of the same judicial hardening which has befallen my people. Eyes that see not, ears that hear not. If you will not accept Jesus, there could come a time when you cannot accept Jesus. Don't do it. Don't allow your heart to become so calloused with repeated rejection of the Jesus you know is your Savior that there comes a time when you can't even discern truth anymore. I beg you, learn from my people. Even God's chosen can be so hardened that we can't see truth anymore. Don't leave this place without saying, oh, God, I know you came in the form of man. I know of you. I was raised differently. This is not new to me. I've gone to church. 
I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm on the outs with you. I know you made a way. I know you sent your son to die in my place. I know I haven't by faith embraced him as my savior. I know I've been comfortable keeping him at arm's length, and now I'm afraid if I keep doing it, you may give me over to my rejection of your son. Don't do it. Say tonight, I don't want to be like those Jews. Say tonight, oh God, I know enough, I see enough. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Save me. You've given me the choice. I exercise my free will in the direction of faith. Save me, Savior. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Fill me with newness of life with which I could live on a different track. Take me home when I die or when you come first. Don't let me leave this place, oh God. Don't let me live one more minute keeping you at arm's length. I know enough to know I'm a sinner and you're my Savior. Be my Savior, Lord Jesus. Be my Savior tonight. I beseech you before you leave tonight, make that decision. And if you want help, meet with one of us in the Connection Center before you leave tonight. Let us pray with you. Field questions you may have. Let's, if I could be crass, seal the deal. Today is August 15th. 2018, be born again. Do it. Do it tonight. Lord Jesus, in the power of your spirit, thank you for each who is here. Thank you for so many who believe, but there are others who I, I suspect still yet have not. It means trust. They have enough data. They need no more information. It means to lean on you as Savior. It's to make boast in no virtue or good deeds. It's to boast in your finished work on the cross. I pray you would so overwhelm the ones here tonight who still yet do not know you that today you, he, she would go out together a saved one, saved by your mercy, Savior. Oh, God, you desire for none to perish, but for all to be saved, Jew, Gentile, male, female, black, white. Thank you, oh, God. The only way to be excluded from your grace is if we exclude ourselves, and please, I pray, don't let that happen tonight. Let not one person leave here without knowing for certain I have accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. He is mine forever, and I shall ever be with him. This I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you, folks. Please take this seriously, because there could come a day when it is too late.